Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and welcome to Cape Up. Future Face, a family mystery, an epic quest, and the secret to belonging is number one on President Obama's summer reading list. Its author is Alex Wagner, contributing editor to The Atlantic and co-executive producer of The Circus on Showtime. Think of her book as a three-act opera where Wagner, half-white, half-Burmese, untangles her family's history. But the power of her story comes from the revelations it gives her for our country today. The other piece about tracing your ancestry is it makes you, I think, slightly more empathetic about what happens today. I am, I think, more forgiving because I realize that all of our family history is definitely mine. It's populated with thieves and, and liars and incompetent people who weren't bad people and who I'm not ashamed of, but who are my family. This conversation was originally recorded at the Aspen Ideas Festival on June 26th in Aspen, Colorado. This episode has been edited for content and clarity. Thank you, Alex Wagner, for being the reason why we are here. Alex Wagner is the co-host and executive producer of The Circus on Showtime, the national affairs correspondent for CBS News, but also anchor, uh, and the author of Future Face, A Family Mystery, An Epic Quest, and The Secret to Belonging. I read it, it's so Alex Wagner, the way it's written. I heard her voice in every word on every page that I read. But as I was reading it, I kept wondering, Alex, where did this book come from? At at what point did you decide, I want to write this book? And uh, how long did it take? (laughs) So... In my like strange television, and I also write for The Atlantic, things oh, happen yeah, very Oops. quickly, right? <laughs> well, the life cycle of a story and a news piece is pretty short. This book took me four years to write, which to me felt like a total eternity. <clears throat> if you talk to other actual authors, they're like, that's pretty fast. Um, but the, the genesis of the book is basically, I'll start at the very beginning, which is my mom is from Burma, and my dad was born in a tiny town on the land... Um, the Mississippi River called Lansing, Iowa. And I grew up this mixed race kid that didn't really think about being mixed race until this moment when I was 12 years old and I was at a diner with my dad. And my dad, normal white guy, got up to go use the bathroom. And the line cook looked at me and he said, are you adopted? And it was the first time that I realized that the way that I saw myself, which was generically American, a kid that liked Garfield and Chips Ahoy and Murder, She Wrote, that was not the way that everybody else saw me. And it was also the first time that I realized the power in being told you were American and how I, for the first time, found myself on the outside of that and how much I wanted to be on the inside. And I remember answering this guy almost embarrassed for the way that I look, saying, oh, my mom's Asian, you know, as if that should explain why I looked the way that I was, when in reality, why shouldn't I be the natural-born daughter of a white American? Many people have children children with people from other races. So that was kind of a a turning point, I think, in my own identity. And for my teen years, I kind of didn't put myself in any box. There was this cover of Time magazine that came out in 1993, and it was the future face of America. And it was this composite image of all the races that were going to compose the United States in the years hence. And I looked at it, and I remember being in high school, and I said, that is me. I look like that. I am future face. 
So that for a time became the thing that I, I wrapped my identity around. And I didn't care whether people thought I was Hawaiian or Egyptian or Alaskan or Burmese American. I just liked the idea that I was the avatar of the future. But that kind of sort of made up identity, which is inherently one of privilege, especially given how, how, how deeply and distressingly grounded race still is in America, it's, it's not sustaining. And as I got older, I felt like I want to know where I belong. I want to know who my people are. I want to know what community is my own. And that was the genesis of this book. I have one of the world's great book editors. His name is Chris Jackson. And he is brilliant. And he has edited books by ta Coates and Eddie Wong. And he's really deeply engaged on the issue of identity and race. And he was like, you have this book in you. And so I decided. What year was that? That was. That's key. It's like that was 2014, and Barack Obama was president, and Barack Obama was. We call him our first black president, but he's our first mixed race president, right? And I thought we, as a country, were on a totally different path when it comes to identity and race, the moral arc of the universe. And so I started writing this book under the auspices of sort of how, like, our changing ideas of collective American identity. Midway through writing this book, Donald Trump became president. And all of my ideas about sort of settled questions relating to who belongs in this country and who doesn't, who we think of ourselves as Americans, all of that stuff was thrown totally out the window. So your book is done in, let's think of it as, as an opera, the three-act opera. And so the first act is... Um, as you described it, the stories we tell ourselves. Yeah. And so in your family, you have um, the Burmese stories yeah. that you heard from your mother and your grandmother. Talk about those. Yeah. And then we'll get to America. Yeah. <laughs> um, my mother grew up in Burma, and the stories she would tell about Burma were these impossibly romantic stories about the monsoon rains coming and leaving the scent of jasmine wafting on her walk to school and you know getting mandarin oranges in a little paper bag at her english english language school in rangoon and you know my having bananas at tea time and these very genteel beautiful reminiscences my grandmother had ones that were even more so being treated to cadbury chocolate and you know burma was a, a british colony and all these vestiges of colonialism that weren't troubling but that were romantic and idealized and i had accepted all of this right as this american kid i was like man the only smell i smell when i go <laughs> across the street to go to school is like the bad breath of the crossing guard like what must it be like to smell jasmine and frangipane um, so I accepted this unquestioningly, as I think we all do, right? We, we hear stories from our parents and our grandparents about what life was like in the old country or wherever they came from. And we sort of, we, they are biblical. They are truth. There could be no, there could be no alternate history. Um, but that begged the question, why then did my parents leave? Why did my grandmother leave? What was happening in Burma what was the backdrop against our departure? And I realized I didn't actually know. I knew what contemporary Burma was struggling with. But at the time that my entire Burmese family decided to say, you know what, we're done with this place, I didn't realize what we were leaving and what the problems were. So the first part of the book is trying to go back through these family stories and find what the actual truth was. 
then you have your father's side of the family, which also has this very idyllic, very American yeah. story, as you call it, the white immigrant origin, origin story. story. W-I-O-S. You may be familiar because everyone's talking about how it's going to make America great again. Um, the, it became also really important to me, as, especially in the backdrop of the Trump candidacy and now presidency, to explore whiteness as, as identity, too. Like, I think we often only look at identity as a construct of brown people. Like, oh, where'd you come from? You get the hyphenation, Burmese-American or African-American, but white people are just American. But of course, whiteness is an identity, and white identity politics are <laughs> incredibly powerful mm-hmm. things at this moment. <clears throat> so I, my, grand, my grandfather, my father grew up in a Norman Rockwell postcard. His mother was a stay-at-home mom. His father was a rural mailman. They had six kids. She would make donuts on Sunday. They would eat fish on Friday. They went to Catholic schools. They had their knuckles wrapped by the nuns. They played stickball at twilight. And it was, like, impossible, right? Like, who actually grew up like this? And again, I said, but how did we get to be these people? We came from Europe and landed in Iowa, but why did we land in Iowa? And more importantly, who was there before us? My dad said this thing that became the hook for a further exploration. He said, the only person of color in town was a black dry cleaner, and he was a really nice guy. And I thought, why were there no people of color in your tiny Midwest town? In fact, why, why aren't there more people of color in the Midwest in general? And this seems like an incredibly obvious question, but not until I undertook this like, very concerted effort to find out the truth did I begin asking these questions. And what I found, of course, is the land didn't always belong to us. It belonged to someone else. And we prevented other people from coming to claim a part of it as we had. Um, in fact, your grandfather, your father said when you asked your your grand, they just gave your they just gave my father the yeah, land. Like the people they just were came giving over. away land, you right. know, whatever twenty five acres if you could farm it. And it's like, well, why were we giving away the land? Because should, and, I, should, I, should I reveal? Or not yet, because okay, that's right, that's Act Two in the opera. But <laughs> I love but, you, Jonathan. But on page one sixty six, she writes, <laughs> "When my father said the land was free, he hadn't thought about or cared to know particularly." The price that had been paid by someone else, all that free land wasn't really free as it turned out. So act two in the book is the untangling. Yeah. So- and this, this, and this honestly required um, travel. I, I went back to Burma. I went to Luxembourg where my great-grandfather was from, all in a bid to get at who we actually were. On my dad's side, what I realized is the people who had been there on the land that we ultimately grew peaches and dill and made our kitchen garden grow from, that land had belonged to the Winnebago Indian. And it had never occurred to me, as much as I knew about the Trail of Tears and the history of the Native people in this country, it had never occurred to me that that history intersected so directly with my history. And um, I realized that the Winnebago, in my research, you know, they fought for this land. They were lied to about how long they could be on the land. They were moved off. They were ultimately decimated in number through war, strife, disease. They were basically extinguished. And when we talked about our story, the white immigrant origin story, the story of the Wagners of Lansing, Iowa, never ever did we account for the fact that the place that we had put down our roots had once belonged to someone else. And it was a real eureka moment for me that I, in telling my family story to my child who I just had, I could tell a story that, was, that didn't begin in the same place. My story would begin five or 10 or 15 years before the, Wagner got there, the Wagners got there. It would start with the Winnebago. 
And that this book, and in fact all of our family stories, if we know the truth behind them, if we know the facts and who our people were, we can have a more comprehensive account of what this country is and who we owe, we owe a debt to and what we earned on our own and what we should seek forgiveness for. Because indeed, nothing got here by, none of us got here by accident. And, and none of us, as much as certain people in this day and age would like to say, it's just through dint of hard work and divine providence that we became this triumphant society, there are a lot of unsettled debts on the ledger. And so this was the first time that I realized that tracing family history can also be a way of settling debts in the present day. And that's on the, <clears throat> that's on the American side. You went to Burma, yeah. and so, you go to Burma with visions of um, uh, uh, jasmine. Yeah. The smell of jasmine in the streets and bananas at tea time and yeah. things. What did you find? What did I you found, find? Uh, so I found, one thing I'll tell you about genealogical work is the, you trace your ancestry and you, you also trace the history of the world. So I had never thought about the Suez Canal opening. Like that's just not something I ever spent any time thinking about. But in learning my family history, the opening of the, of the Suez Canal created a trade route for Burma. And all the rice that was grown in Burma now had a new market in, in Western Europe. That changed industry and production in Burma. And my great-grandfather was involved in a lending system that basically turned out to be a pyramid scheme, a well-intentioned pyramid <laughs> scheme, I might add, uh, but that devastated the Burmese economy and devastated Burmese agrarian finance. We had always told ourselves a story about my great-grandfather being this amazing bureaucrat with this fancy title. And as it turned out, he was like a, a sort of incompetent, maybe not not necessarily nefariously so, but a bad actor in a complicated financial disaster. We think about crimes that happened in the financial world in America in 2007, 2008, the subprime mortgage lending scandal. And I think we've lost the, sense, the understanding that it's a chain of human beings making bad decisions. And this was the first time that I could place someone from my own family in a similar situation. The other piece about tracing your ancestry is it makes you, I think, slightly more empathetic about what happens today. As we seem to have lost a certain sense of humanity for and among each other, I am more, I am, I think, more forgiving because I realize that all of our family history is definitely mine. It's populated with thieves and, <laughs> and liars and incompetent people who weren't bad people and who I'm not ashamed of, but who were my family, and they existed. And it's not my job to apologize for all their sins, but I'm glad that I know what they were. What I love, one of my favorite passages in the book, um, on page 224, <laughs> where Alex writes, I saw glimpses of who my real people might have been, carved out from the negative space of my family history. I saw who we actually were. We were storytellers, revisionists, liars. We built our future selves on deceit and half-truths, half-truths, we plastered our cracks with omissions as well as genuine courage and smarts and will. In this act of recreation, we became Americans, and I guess there was some kind of belonging in that. Yeah. There's one piece of this that we haven't talked about, and that was one of the, the early mysteries in the <laughs> book, and that was you were convinced that your father's side of the family was hiding Jewish heritage. Yes. 
Well, now, I give myself a pass on this because if you, too, had an aunt who said, oh, yeah, I mean, I remember our Uncle Leo would sit me down after school and say, I don't know, I'm just an old Jew, but this is what I think about the world. I mean, there's reason, right? And then there was, Yeah. I mean, that's a strange data point for an Irish Catholic family. Right, um, from the Midwest. From the Midwest. And then there were other little pieces of anecdotes, shreds that made no sense. My great-grandfather was drowning in a fishing accident and started screaming in Yiddish. Well, I mean, who just casually knows Yiddish? <laughs> so I became like, it's actually, I feel like I'm slightly embarrassed about it in the book because I was like, God, I really, it's like I really wanted to be Jewish. No, you really did. And it was like, like, <laughs> keep in mind, this was a search for belonging and identity and like where better to belong than one of the oldest tribes on the planet? Also, a lot of my Jewish friends had have such a strong sense of identification with Judaism, and that was like totally attractive to me as someone that kind of grew up as a Roman Catholic who had a Buddhist mother and went to Reform Jewish nursery school. I was like all over the place in terms of religion. <laughs> So I wanted badly to belong. But I'll be honest with you, I also wanted to disrupt the family narrative. Like, I wanted things to be the opposite of what we had said because I felt like the, the storytelling had been lazy and it had been so <laughs> filled with obfuscations that it was like, you know what? Not only are we not Catholic, we're Jewish. <laughs> so I went, I mean, I was like, I went to Esch Luxembourg. I'm like in the archives with the little white linen gloves looking at census data from the turn of the 18th century. And it was just like, you know, that then led me to, I was not finding any definitive evidence, but that then led me to DNA testing. And that's, and that's act three in, in the opera, but I don't want to get there yes, just okay. yet because you're also in the stacks of the, um, of the British Library. Yeah. And this was my second favorite um, part of the book. Um, and it gets back to something that you said earlier on is that when you trace your family history, you trace the history of the world. And... You're right. What dawned on me at this moment, sitting in the climate-controlled stacks of the British Library, was both the absurdity and the synergy of my dueling family histories. If there had never been a bloody European land skirmish in the 19th century, there might not have been a Franco-Prussian war. If Henry Wagner and his future father-in-law had never gotten tangled up in the Franco-Prussian war, there might not have, they might not have left for America. If there never had been a bloody... European land skirmish in the 19th century, the British may well have left Upper Burma alone. The Burmese court would have stayed intact. The British would never have gained full control of the country. And the military hunter that seized power in a coup and subsequently drove my grandmother and mother off to the United States might never have come to power. In other words, the Europeans and their territorial aggressions had upended two people on opposite sides of the globe for very different reasons at the very same time. Yeah. It's, it's really... I got to say, I, I thought about that. Jonathan and I were talking, um, doing extensive prep work for this panel, <laughs> as you can tell. And, um, and we, were I was talking, we were talking about that part of the book. And I think what we don't realize is how history in these major movements, wars, territorial aggressions, we think of them in big terms. We rarely think of them in human terms. And I thought about it in the context of these children on the border. And... We have, no we have no idea what will happen in the immediate future, <clears throat> but that decision to take some 2,000 children away from their parents is going to have unintended terrible consequences. It is also, in a valueless way, going to set a whole group of people on a completely different trajectory that we won't know about. I mean, 
maybe right. one of those children will ultimately become the president. Well, I guess if you're foreign born, will become a leader, right? We have no idea. But, but when you do this work, you realize that the things that seem arbitrary, if you look at them in the context of your personal history, can be fortuitous or damning. But the macro becomes incredibly micro. And it is a reminder of the basic sort of core humanity that lies at the center of of all history. And so you weren't satisfied to enough to just sit in the stacks with the white gloves no. going through the records. Who would be? You you went in for went in for DNA. And yeah. this is the part of the book that I was like, whoa, this I didn't see this coming. And that was when you get into what became a bit of an obsession, <laughs> DNA testing. Ancestry doc, Ancestry.com, 23andMe. Family, family tree DNA. Family tree DNA, and what you thought was going to be just a couple hundred dollars yeah, ended up being thousands. It's a Ponzi scheme. <laughs> Don't so, do it. So, and and this is actually the newsy, the newsy yeah. part of the book because I, I was one of those people. It's like, yeah, maybe I'll do that, and I'll find out that you know, like I'm one sixteenth. I don't know Burkina Faso. Yeah. But after reading, after reading your book. I'm not going anywhere near I, that. I, well, if I've convinced you of that, then I've done my work. Um, so I, the DNA testing stuff is proposed, if you watch the ads, it's like, find out you're a citizen of the world. Find out you know, how, how interrelated we are. I actually found that it was sort of the opposite. First of all, the science behind it is questionable. You got to keep in mind that all these DNA tests are, they're for-profit companies. They want to make money. They accrue data sets based on market demand. If you're Irish-American, chances are there are a lot of Irish-Americans taking DNA tests. They're a big part of the consumer group. So the companies have pretty well-developed data sets for Western Europe. Same, some parts of Africa are better covered than others. Burma? Not so much. Burma has languished in an internet blackout basically for all of its contemporary history. There's very little purchasing power. The Burmese are not logging on and paying $100 a test. As a result, it's very hard to get accurate Burmese DNA results. Some countries, like China, don't even let companies take DNA out. That's increasingly happening in different parts of the world. When I started taking the test, the, the, the results that were returned were all over the place. My I made my mom and my grandmother and my <laughs> father. I took the test because I wanted to get as big a data set as possible. But at one point, I mean, my mom's stuff was saying she was like 20% Mongolian. And, and maybe she was at some point in time, but there are all these questions about like, what does it mean to even find pure DNA? What does pure Irish DNA look like? Because the Vikings came over, and that could be Scandinavian DNA, right? At what point does it become Irish DNA? At what point is Burmese DNA Burmese DNA and not Chinese DNA? Because of course, Burma is a polyglot country. We don't, the, the boundary seeking, the boundaries are arbitrary. The data sets are market driven. And the results were all over the place. My, my Asian DNA stuff was weird. And my, even the stuff that I got on my dad's side, one test told me I was 14% Scandinavian. One test told me I was 0% Scandinavian. And how did that compare to your dad? And my dad was 13% Scandinavian. So she had more, so the test right. showed that she was more Scandinavian than, my than her full white dad. Yeah, and I was like, mom, is there something you want to tell me about your <laughs> Scandi roots? Like, I mathematically didn't, and I, and I went back and I talked to the makers of these tests, and they, they were very sheepish, and they said, one said, well, we, we might have overcorrected in that model. And it's like, it's okay if, if you're wrong, but you have to tell the consumer that. They're very kind of cavalier about 
the whole thing, the, the question of ancestry. But, you know, people, like, I was ready to start celebrating St. Lucia Day. I was ready to be like, <laughs> uh, you know, like, just talk, like, ad nauseum about Ikea and, like, you know, reindeer. Like, I was like, this is my family history. Like, this is my tribe that I belong to. But it's fake. It was totally wrong. And, and, and I think that, so there was that part that I had an issue with. And then there's the more sociological, cultural piece of it, which is, these tests tell us that we are different from one another, and that difference is rooted in race. To begin with, the idea that race is scientifically based is very much up for debate. And beyond that, at this moment in time, when it feels like there is a chasm that is opening up between us, is it really the time to be sort of telling ourselves how different we are from one another? I think that people take the ancestry tests because they have a good intention, which is to know more about their people. But if you want to know more about your people, you actually need to do the hard work of genealogy. Because what ends up happening in the ancestry test, at least in my case, is I think we hold on to certain results, like the Scandinavian result or the Mongolian result, the most exotic parts of them. And we use them <coughs> as conversation starters or cocktail chatter or ways to sort of like flaunt our peacock feathers. And I'm not sure that actually brings us closer together. I think it doubles down on this idea that we are individually singular. And that, at this time, seems like maybe not the best exercise. And I want to talk, I want to talk more about that, but I want to expand just a little bit more on the, the, the fact that your, your mother's DNA and your grandmother, no, not your mother's DNA and your grandmother's DNA yeah. came back with Mongolian. And to your point- And Chinese, yeah. And, and Chinese. Well, yes, Monk, yes. But didn't you find out in, your, in talking to the, the various yeah. folks that the reason why Mongolian showed up is because they it's were hard. using, because they couldn't get Chinese Chi Directly Chinese, data. they would, oh, they would, the test would correct for the, the nearest country that had similar DNA traits. That also seems like pretty questionable because I was like, <laughs> Genghis Khan, like this is my, this is my group of horseback, you know, like t <laughs> Tibetan riders over the steps, Mongolian riders over the steps. And, um, you know, that, I don't think that was the case. One, I talked to a lot of evolutionary biologists and genealogists, and they said, you know, some of these tests are better than others. Uh, some of them are legitimately trying to get more data. They've now, since I've taken the test, it's one of them, I think 23andMe has a confidence index, which they didn't have before, which can tell you like how confident they are in the results they're giving you. But one guy said, you know, I wouldn't put much more credence to it than recreation, like a crystal ball. And I was That's like, right. Right. a ball, like, by <laughs> the way, I put no credit, like, a magic eight ball and Ouija you board, you like, shake it up, like, yeah. maybe Irish. <laughs> yeah, unclear, try again, yeah. like, so, and I, but I, and I felt like, you know, I would almost even give them a pass because the confidence index and, you know, like, but, but what it, what it, what the implications are, and this leads to sort of the, the final conclusion of the book, it's like, it makes us obsessed with like the, the nebulous past, not our actual past, which is actually more interesting and complicated than what a DNA test is gonna tell you. And I think it, uh, it gives people a way of, of divesting in the present. And I think what this moment calls for, particularly, is doubling down on the community that we have here on this very thin part of the Earth's crust with the men and women who are with us for an unspecified amount of time as we, you know, live on this beautiful planet for an unknown period of years. Let's talk more about the, about the us and them, and then I'll open it up to uh, Q&A from the audience. But um, you write, and it, it hits early on, and it goes back to your story about being in the diner and the guy asks you, like, what are you? And you write, in the eyes of certain folks, 
who were universally certain white folks, I was not generically American, I was something else. If my we included them, yeah. theirs did not include me. Yeah, I, I think that it, it is important to acknowledge that, that re being rejected, as, as, as many people of color are from the American project at this moment, or being told that they are rejected is deeply painful. <clears throat> and that the work, and that that should not be shortchanged in the work, which is, I think, like part of the, the reality of where we are as a country is that we're, we're in it together, for better and for worse. Unless, you know, we were talking about this earlier, like we tried the Civil War, that didn't work. We are in the project together. Given that, like a certain amount of forgiveness is necessary, and that doesn't mean it's easy, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I can't, it, it's And I will also say, being a mixed-race American whose race is um, unknown is very different than being a black American, where your race sort of like, your identity is sort of written before you've even opened your mouth, right? Yeah, right. I mean, and so race was more fungible and in some ways escapable for someone like me than it necessarily is in the black experience. And I'm fully aware of that as I say all of this. Um, but, you know, and I, th I feel like I'm channeling my inner Obama when I say this, but when you do, especially the DNA piece and, and, and the tracing of ancestry, you know, we all started out in this one place, Mother Africa. We spread around the globe. We, the DNA sort of made its, the genetics gave us different facial features or whatever, but we are all the same and we are destined through globalization and marriage and trade and travel to get back together again all the same. We will be, people may want to erect walls, people may want to separate each other, but the, the inexorable direction that we are heading in is kinship, is to look more and more alike, to be closer together. And, and that, is, that is, like I think, a little bit of insurance against moments like this. Well, moments like this, though, where, I mean, insurance, uh, I mean, the deductible must be real high. <laughs> um, but we're at a moment where we have a president of the United States who is rhetorically and policy-wise making this us versus them chasm mm -hmm. even wider. I think, to me, what's more, even more distressing is the hooting and hollering and cheering that his words and his rhetoric gets, which makes me fear that this grand experiment that is our country, and particularly the, the eight years of the previous administration, yeah. just like that, crumble, just could crumble down. Yeah. Two years ago, no, last year, I wrote a piece, because today is June 26th, 2018, on this date, three years ago, to my mind, was the greatest day in American history. That morning, the Supreme Court ruled that marriage, that same-sex couples had a constitutional right to marry. Yeah. That afternoon, the President of the United States went to, Charlotte, uh, um, to Charleston, South Carolina, to eulogize uh, the uh, Emmanuel Nine, and then blew the country away by yeah. singing uh, Amazing Grace and then came home and then blew the country's mind again by doing something unprecedented, and that was lighting the White House in the rainbow colors. Yeah. My husband, who's here now, and I were at dinner, and we had both had long weeks, both real cranky, and <clears throat> we started getting these social media posts from people saying something's happening at the White House. Something, there's some lights happening, 
And so we got in a cab, we were going home. And I said to Nick, we gotta go. Like, I think we need to see this. And he's like, no, I'm gonna get home, I'm tired. <laughs> Nick, and we know you didn't say that. Nick. And I said, I'm tired too, but it, no, we have to see this. And then we bickered our way from, we got out at Hay Adams, and we bickered our way through Lafayette Park. <laughs> like, let's, get, said, let's stay married. So, right, I said, we weren't married yet. No, yeah, right. And so we That's make our way, and by then it was dark. And the White House was just this beautiful rainbow. Mm-hmm. And here we are, three years later, mm-hmm. talking about the United States of America jailing babies. Yeah, right. I get it. Us versus them. Yeah, we're incarcerating toddlers. Um, the you know, here's what I'll say. I fundamentally believe that this moment is the end of something and not the beginning of something. In 2045, the, the United States of America will be minority white. That is real. That's happening. We don't know who's gonna, who the president will be, but we know that's happening. And I think it is exactly what someone like Donald Trump and his supporters want is for progress that we have made consistently for the last half century to be denied and to suggest that it's transient and that it's somehow not enshrined in law and that it's not actually part of the American social fabric. But the truth is it is. I mean, the truth is also, <laughs> Three, more, three million more people voted for Hillary Clinton than Donald Trump. Right. The, electoral, the Electoral College does not get to rewrite actual history and does not get to determine what the American story is. And the American story, as complicated and hellacious as this moment is, <laughs> we have made progress. And he, Donald Trump would love for us to pretend that Barack Obama was a blip, was an aberration. But the truth is, we will have more mixed-race presidents and we will have a female mixed race president, and we will probably have a black female president at one point. We don't know when, but that's the, that is the path that we're on. I mean, it's, that is the reality, and as difficult as this moment is, I think it is a lot of fear about that inevitability and a desire to sort of shortchange it or erode it or undermine it in some capacity. And it's, and it's difficult, man. I mean, I just, I'm a mom, I have a one-year-old, and that story about the migrant children has like devastated me in a way that nothing else this president has done has. And he's done a lot of things that have been difficult, right? <laughs> yeah. um, but I take solace in the fact that like, that's not the whole story. That's one chapter. And it's, it's really a plot line that is concluding. So um, questions and short Short questions and, and hopefully short answers. Here, here, and no, no, no. <laughs> I see you. <laughs> this was really phenomenally uplifting, and so thank you for that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, one question I have for you is something about America that has been observed abroad as well as here is that you can be Asian American, you can be African American, you can be whatever culture you have come from and also American and, you know, uh, hyphenate that. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's... Positive or problematic? Oh, I think it's, pardon my French, bullshit that people of color have to have hyphenations. Like, I just look forward to the day when it's like, you're an American, I'm an American, that's what we are. At the same time, I realize that heritage is an important piece of this, um, and people shouldn't be denied their heritage if that's what they want. Um, I went to Burma and I went to Europe and I expected to set foot to ground and feel like these tremors of like identification, right? And I think cultural tourism, ancestral tourism, people go back to Africa, people go to Ireland, they want to walk the ground their ancestors walked. And that's totally legit. I didn't feel it. In fact, 
what I came away with was a realization that my home is this place. Like, this is where I'm from. This fucked up, amazing, chaotic <laughs> But like, and as such, like, that's what I mean about reinvesting. It's like, th- you guys are my people. We're each other's people. So let's do it. Thank you. I just have more of a, a, from a personal perspective, whether you had any pushback from your family about, you know, what uh, truths that they didn't believe to be their truths, whether how they felt about that and um, whether anything happened or did happen and then was resolved and how that sort of wrapped itself around you as a family. Um, are, are, you, are you an only child? Yeah. Okay. That made it all of this like even weightier. It's like our only child is destroying the family. <laughs> um, I will say, you know, I overall, I have... People who have read the book and been like, yeah, are you still in your family? Do they excommunicate you? <laughs> I, think I, have, I, wa- I mean, I wondered. I've got notes in here. It's like, how's their family react to this? Um, they... But there's a lot of, as much as I air out the family business, it's also written with a fair amount of tenderness and love. Like, people have slave owners in their history. People have racists in their families. Those are complicated relationships, but sometimes you can't forsake them entirely, right? I mean, that's just humanity. Um, My mom says that my mom loves the book, but at every stop, She's like, make sure to remind them that I take issue with some of the characters. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I'm doing. Um, but, you know, she was very proud of the work that I did. And there is a lot in there about the Burmese and, uh, you know, racism within the Burmese culture. And that was difficult to write. But she is like... that was involving your grandmother. Yeah. Yeah. Racist attitudes my grandmother had and that many Burmese have, which is why there's a genocide of Muslims happening in Burma right now. Myanmar, to, uh, officially. Um, so that was difficult. My dad um, passed away, right, as I was finishing the book. And that was completely unexpected, so I never actually got a chance to talk to him about any of the like big lessons from the book. And that will remain, like I think, the toughest part of the whole book. You know, It's like unfinished business, but what can you say? I wrote it you know, with him and his legacy and the stories I would tell my son about his grandfather in mind. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really, it really throws into sharp relief. My dad died three weeks before my son was born, and as I was writing the last chapters of the book, and it was like, if anything crystallizes the, the sense that we are here for a very unspecific and limited amount of time, it is a moment like that. Do you still have your question? No, um, I'm getting, oh, I'm, I see you already have a mic. Go ahead. Hi, uh, real quick. Um, the dangers of DNA testing, mm-hmm. totally get that. But is it also possible, and especially the danger of, you know, that sort of going back to tribalism, looking for your group, is that kind of flying in the face of what we are as Americans to try to come together? Um, but could it also not be a kind of a gateway drug, if you will, to genealogy? And uh, to your point about world history and understanding where we come from, could that also create the empathy for immigrants to, uh, coming to the country today? Mm-hmm. If everyone knew, you know, there's very few of us who are actually born and, you know, who yeah. come from this land. Right. Could that create the empathy we need to not have some of these issues? I, 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 I think could that, there, I mean, yes, right? That's why I started taking the DNA test. I wanted to find out the, the sort of riddles of family, some of the family DNA, but I also thought, I want to see how much I am a citizen of the world mm-hmm. and all the rest. I just think in philosophy, maybe, but in practice, I just don't think that that's what happens. Having said that, anything that's a gateway drug to genealogy and actually learning more about the truth, I'm all for, right? I just think people should be aware of the broader 
sort of sociological argument. And man, I wish people were excited to know about their fellow man as they were to learn about some dead people that they'll literally never meet. You know what I mean? Like, what about your neighbor? Like, why not, why not stop like, in, like emailing someone and pick up the phone? I just feel like it's like don't look for your belonging by like tracing DNA of, of people who effectively are going to remain imaginary. Like, if you, want, if you want a story, if you want to belong, talk to someone who's alive. <laughs> yeah. I actually have, a, I think, a, a related question. So I sort of uh, am part of a very large transracial adopted community. And so I think that a lot of adoptees turn to DNA tests, yeah. which are flawed yeah. um, and give funky results. But I think that people that have experienced like a lifetime of ambiguous loss or... Um, erasure within their own family systems. What do you tell Yeah, them? and I, look, I, I think that my argument is not a universal argument, right? I mean, like I said, like on the race issue, like the black experience is different from the mixed race experience. Adoptees are, are missing a, a narrative that they can never reclaim by talking to family members. So, you know, I understand that. I also, I mean, but I would say, again, like, you're not going to, I mean, you'll, you'll know about places, but you'll never know the people. And, and, you know, I'm, I don't know that it scratches the itch, but if, I'm not an adoptee, so I, I would never begin to speak for that community. Yeah, it's actually very similar as what I was going to mention. Um, so I was adopted from Sri Lanka. I grew up in the Netherlands, and I now live in the United States, and I'm married to my African-American husband. All right, baby. And um, he, he's already decided that our children are going to be Sri Dutchican. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's going to be their ethnicity. Um, so, but, I'm, but I'm sharing that because similar to your point, there's a whole part of our, of our history that's missing. Mm -hmm. And for me, being in you know, kind of three different continents in my own life, that's, that's happened. And so um, I think your point that you just mentioned earlier about how do we build belonging mm -hmm. and what is a sense of identity and home, I've always felt like it was a, a, a you know, do-it-yourself kind of project for me because I didn't have that context. Yeah. So, you know, I, you kind of answered my question I, by how do we build belonging without that piece in the now. Yeah, and, I, and I think even for people who aren't adopted, I'm like, I'm an only child of two people who were both alive until very recently, and you can still feel lost. Even with all the DNA results, the thing that is sustaining and the thing that is life-bringing are personal connections with people who you can talk to and share stories with and pain with and joy with. That's, that's belonging. This has turned into like a psych psychiatry. <laughs> <laughs> Any questions over here? Did you find oh, hold, wait for the mic, wait for the mic, wait for the mic, well, I wait think for the we, mic. Okay, okay. <laughs> okay. Did you find out you had Jewish blood in you? I mean, I... I I did, I did find that I am not Jewish. <laughs> I say that so, like, some weird part of me is like, maybe someone will come forward. It's pretty, it's pretty definitive that I'm not. But it, it actually, I, we, we couldn't get into all the different parts of the book. But the Jewish piece is a very interesting story about yeah. the Yiddish language and, and the sort of um, the, the, the underworld of like, trading in, in Eastern Europe. I, I can't get into all of it, but I am, I am in spirit <laughs> a member of the tribe it is of Israelites. In, it is in Act 3 of the book, and it really is a, fas a fascinating yeah. part because Alex not only goes to the library, she then goes to luxroots.com yeah, like and talks to rooms. real people. And then you, but then you, you talk to real, uh, uh, I guess they were in Wisconsin, who could actually read Yeah, I hired, I like got and, really, uh, I got hired deep. people at some point. Because I'm not a genealogist also. I was like, what am I doing here? 
but I'm not, to answer your question more succinctly. Chris, you have a question? One more question, and then we'll... Thank you. I, I didn't want to squander the opportunity to have two of our most notable journalists before us and not ask this question, and that is of the many things that you've engaged with and grappled with, the topics and things going on, is there anything in the last 12 months, say, that you've completely changed your mind about? Oh. about on anything. On anything. Well, well, sir, yeah, anything that's important to you where you found you've really changed your mind about it. Wow, that's a deep question, Chris. I mean, I'll say this is not like a specific thing. I, 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 I do think that these times are incredibly testing. And there was a period where I was like, it's all over. We're all fucked. The good parts are gone. <laughs> and I... And now it's just not I, in bold and italics. No, it's just no, regular I, fonts. I, I, I really, I, I really, and you may call me Pollyannish, but like everything from public protest to the, um, to the renewed interest in the fourth estate, to the tenacity of our colleagues, um, to the inherent goodness of people who are going to the border, the lawyers who are getting trained over the phone to defend these kids. There is a, a kindness and a belief in the goodness of the project that I, I was really, was, I thought it was broken, you know, at a certain point. And I, I really, I feel actually in some ways as like very optimistic because, you know, um, that part of us is not gone. It's been reaffirmed, not in every corner, but in many corners. Um, just to echo what Alex was saying, um, we were <clears throat> in Washington, it was the, Two weekends after the Women's March, and he had announced his travel ban. Talk about uh, irony, given today's Supreme Court ruling. But I'd, something happened in Washington that I'd never seen before. We were at brunch. We kept hearing about people going to march and protest. And so we went down to take a look. Everyone's gathered in front of the White House. And I will never forget people streaming on the streets from every direction with signs just pouring out of every, I don't know where all these people came from, but they were descending upon the White House to make sure that their, vo that their voices were heard. That was the first time where I felt like everything's not fucked. Yeah. The second time I felt that way, and then, you know, of course I receded back into, oh my God. <laughs> yeah. But the second time was the, the Parkland kids. Yeah. Even in the middle, in the middle of the tragedy, they were taking the social media and they were organizing and they were um, um, being activists. And then the March for Our Lives happened. Never been more moved by just kids. And I call them kids on purpose because we have to remember that it's children yeah. who have pushed this country to where it, where it should be. Remember those kids protesting in Birmingham during the civil rights movement? John Lewis, people forget, was 20 years old when he got into the movement, 23 when he spoke at the March on Washington. And the fact that they were able to organize that protest yeah. in those speeches, yeah. every last, I was driving, and I almost, I almost drove off the road listening to Naomi Wadler's speech. So much power and passion in what she said. So uh, I am... 
I'm hopeful and optimistic, but I will tell you that if November does not go the way that <laughs> I would move, like move. it to go, um, I will be very fearful for, for this experiment simply because the legislative branch that's supposed to be a check on the executive yeah. hasn't done, been doing anything. And that's what's been keeping this project alive, yeah. the checks and balances. I want to close out by getting you to briefly in the two minutes that we have left, because it gets back to something that you said about, you know, talk to somebody. Like, the story is not about people way back when, but it's about the people now. Yeah. And it was when your, gran- your grandmother passed away. Yeah. And this story, this story was um, surprising, yeah, yeah. to say the least. Um, my grandmother was a devout Buddhist, and she was also an incredibly complicated, selfish, crazy, wonderful person. And she, she, had, she lived till she was 98, and she died. At, the, the deaths in this book, I mean, obviously nobody could have planned for, but they really threw into sharp relief the lessons, right? And as she was dying, she was at uh, my mom's house, and we knew that she wasn't going to make it much longer. She was in hospice care. And she would not open her eyes to really talk to any of us, but we knew she was like still there. And the last person she said anything to was my husband. She loved men, and she loved good-looking men. And, <laughs> and husband, just her husband's a good-looking man. He's a total just box. <laughs> and he came in, and he was wearing a new watch. And my grandmother had always loved baubles and jewelry. She loved diamonds. She loved diamonds. And she opened her eyes. They fluttered open. And she looked down, and she said, good to see you. Nice watch. <laughs> and I thinking, like, oh, my God, is that it? Right? Like, and then she, like, died. I mean, not at that very moment. She died. She died. Those were her, her last like, words. That was it. Like this, this life, like a century on the planet, seeing the like rise of empires, the end of colony, colonial powers, like the advent of the internet, like desegregation, like Burma, like that's it. Nice watch. And then I realized that, like, you know, she wasn't worried. She wasn't trying to leave us with some koan, some important thing, because she knew fundamentally that it would be okay and. Beside the point, it was up to us. And that's what I learned in the book. It's up to us. And those are exactly the last words in her book. It is up to us. Future Face by Alex Wagner, number one on Barack Obama's summer reading list. Alex Alex Wagner, thank you. Namaste. Thank you, my (laughs) friends. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. Cape Up with Jonathan Capehart, you should check out some of our other great podcasts. Like Can He Do That? A podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. Or try Retropod, a daily show for history lovers featuring surprising stories about the past rediscovered. You can find these shows anywhere you listen to podcasts and learn more online at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts.
The Washington 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 Post. Post.